Welcome to a special edition of the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, where I, Mark, am going to go over my top 50 games of all time. We're going to do it on the off week between the normal podcast, and I think this will be really exciting. I know I love making top whatever lists, and I click on them way too much when I'm browsing the internet, no matter what the subject is. I It's just kind of the person I am. So I thought it'd be really fun to do a top 50 games list. The reason it's 50, I'm going to be honest here, is because I don't have the breadth of experience that many reviewers have, and so I would not be able to do an effective top 100 list, like, for instance, the Dice Tower does, and I hope that's fine with you all. (laughs) So Mark's turning into BuzzFeed. Confirmed. Yes. We got a full house here with me. We've got Matt. Hey, how's it going? Who shows up for the podcast through sickness and through health. Yeah, today it's sickness. Yeah, today it is sickness. We got a Ryan here. Hey, how's it going? And special guests, we have Ben, who I think you've heard before. Hey. And my lovely wife, Amber. Hi, everyone. We're jam-packed around three microphones, and I hope it works. So, without any further ado, let's begin the countdown. My 50th favorite game of all time, Millennium Blades. This is one that... I want to play more often. Amber rejects it on the premise, which is it's a game about being a competitive card game player. So it's split into two phases. The first phase, you are in real time buying, selling, trading cards, opening booster packs, and trying to construct a deck. And then in three different segments during the game, you go into a tournament against the other players using those cards. I think it's super fun. And... I wish people would play it with me, guys. I played it once. We had a duel. I think I won, maybe. I don't remember. Yeah, I think you won that. And then we had a three-player game, which was substantially better. It didn't seem that great at two players. but well, I, I played three players with you and Wes, and you, you two played a, a two-player, I think. Yeah, it, it was super fun. I, I love the premise. Coming in, I thought that the real-time aspect of the game was going to be the most fun, you know, the, the hassle of building your decks and everything, but it ended up being kind of chill and laid back, and the tournament part itself was actually a lot more fun than I than I thought it would be. So that's my main thing, is that the actual tournament they, they put into this game is surprisingly fun. It's fairly simple. It's not going to be the level of an actual CCG, but I enjoyed it a lot, and I want to do more strategy into that. The downside that I found is is that that puts it at 50 and not higher up is that the point system was kind of arbitrary. It, it was okay. It's just a standard number of points for each tournament you you place at. And the, the points really scaled up over the course of the game. So the third tournament it was worth far more than the other two. Yeah, yeah, it really comes down to the third tournament. I liked this, the, the feel of constructing a deck and collecting these more rare cards and then trying to find abilities that go together. That was fun. Uh, the real-time part was never... I, I thought it was a good balance of time. It forced you to make some decisions, but you I never felt overly rushed. I know a couple of times we just stopped like a minute before the time was to be up because we were all done, basically. Yeah. But a really fun game with a hilarious and fantastic premise. The art is amazing. It looks like Yu-Gi-Oh, but on steroids. And I'm, I'm guilting you on the podcast. You guys need to play this game with me, especially Amber. As you describe it, I just want to do another Magic Draft more, Yeah. to be honest. Game within a game, not working out. As the debater in me would say, perm, do both. 
Magic Draft takes all day. This game takes like an hour and a half. It's a lot shorter than you think. And it's it's really fun. All right. Moving on to number 49 from GMT, one of the fir- the first of many games on this list from GMT. We have Sekigahara, which is a two-player block war game, a, a very simple one set in Japan and it's really good. I first played this at PAX a couple of years ago, and I'd heard about it because it was getting a reprint for the first time in a long time, and it's considered one of the best block war games out there. And for those who don't know, a block war game is where instead of using counters or minis to represent your units, they're actual wooden blocks. And they're positioned so that only you can see the specific unit type on those blocks. So it creates this bluffing scenario, and in Sekigahara, you're bluffing with your cards because the main conceit of the game is that you can only attack and defend with units when you have a matching card type. So there are a number of different factions in there that you're controlling, and you have to have the cards to back them up. So you could go in as a complete underdog in a fight, but come out as a victor because your opponent just doesn't have the right cards. Again, it's very simple. If you want to go into a war game, this is kind of a good introduction. The only thing I'm worried about with more plays is that because there's a very static setup, that it might be kind of repetitive. The strategies for both sides tend to, at least in my experience, shift towards the same general moves. So again, it's a game I want to play more. That's the main reason it's not higher on my list. But if you're interested in war games, this is definitely a good one to start out on. Sounds fun. I might actually play it with you. It was fun. I played it once. The cards really determine what you can do each turn. It's not that hard to find what a good move is. But actually taking battles can be more complicated in deciding when to do that based on what cards you draw. It definitely has a snowball mechanic of once you start to get ahead, you get more ahead because you get more resources. I'd have to play it more to have a, more of an opinion on it. Yeah, the the resource thing, it's a little bit of a snowball. I don't think it's too significant. The no, long... it's not. It's, it's drawing one extra card, like drawing eight cards instead of seven and getting one extra something else, I forget. Yeah, the long view in this game, like I said, I don't... There are two ways it could go, I think. It could either kind of stale out because of the static setup and the in the way that the general strategies are incentivized by that, or it could get better because you know that setup better and then you know what's on your opponent's blocks a little bit better or what types of units are in different areas of the map. So I don't know which way it's going to go, but that's kind of the long view of this game and how it, I think it might diverge. Yeah, I don't think the, the staleness will be a huge problem given that the cards add that variability to it yeah that's a good point yeah all right moving down the list to number 48 and i just noticed a theme with these top three it's games that have amazing concepts but didn't necessarily deliver a hundred percent to make them one of the best games you know that i've ever played Obviously, they're they're very good games, and it's in the top fifty. But so I think this is going to be a theme of this ten games is games that have amazing concepts but didn't execute a hundred percent, maybe just like ninety percent. So number forty eight. Better not be Scythe. It is. It is not Scythe. Although I will spoil this and say that Scythe is on the list somewhere. This list, like this ten or the list. No, it's on the top fifty somewhere. Okay. All right, number 48 is Archipelago. 
Oof, what a frustrating game. So many different systems going on. It's It can be fun and infuriating, and you really have to learn about the game bubble to play this. I think it's pure fun. <laughs> yeah. Pure fun. I a- love it. Amber loves this game because she can be very mean to people. I'm making her sound horrible. I'm sorry, Amber. But You're a very competitive like player. Bring it out in people. Amber's a very competitive I, player, and I love it. That's what I remember, remember about this game is Amber not contributing to the mutual pool. Oh, no. You wouldn't contribute to the mutual pool. I knew you had more to give, and you didn't give it. Amber, you were partially at fault, too. This is the kind of thing that this game creates. This game is, this board game is game theory put in a box and with very pretty colors. Yeah, first of all, it's stunningly beautiful. This is maybe the prettiest game that we own. It looks so good. It's this tropical archipelago theme, and it's got beaches and palm trees and volcanoes, and the art is just amazing. But it has what I think is one of the best semi-co-op systems of any game. In concept, not necessarily in execution. It's semi-co-op seems to overemphasize how much cooperation there is to it's me. A competitive, <laughs> it's a competitive game where you, you are lose. frequently forced to work together or everyone loses. All I can say is I'm sorry, Orion. I'm very, very sorry. One problem I did have with this game is there's the one, what do you call it, the, the goal at the beginning that you get, mm-hmm. that your your goal is to make everyone else lose. It's the best. And I, I think that is very, at least maybe with us specifically, I feel like that's very overpowered because no one wants to contribute to anything. The premise of the game is that everyone's exploring this archipelago and, and gathering resources and building up churches and resource centers and and ports and, and things like that and like your colonialists everyone's trying to carve out the portion of the island that's theirs but or the archipelago that's theirs the problem is that these collective problems surface so there's resources that are needed or you need to calm down the uh the natives there or do things like that and the game frequently forces everyone to basically pitch in work together or the everyone loses time or runs out and i love that concept i think it's amazing i think that more games should introduce things where people are forced to work together or they're forced to make those difficult decisions and negotiate it does make it a very mean experience as you can probably tell but i love it i will note that the game design idea that i've been throwing around in my brain the most is inspired by archipelago like i want to make a better version of this game because i think it would be brilliant the problem is the execution like ben said the person whose private goal it is to basically cause everyone else to lose seems very overpowered and there's a lot of randomness involved in how difficult those collective resource gathering problems are going to be so if you get hit with a string of very difficult ones it's really going to hurt and that's the only reason why it's lower, because I think this game could have been one of the best games. Like, it could have been top 10, but it just needs a few tweaks in execution. This talk makes me want to play Amerigo, which is the archipelago game that I like better. It has nothing in common other than being played on a archipelago. Spoiler alert, Amerigo is not on this list. I, I figured that. <laughs> All right, moving down to number 47. We have a game that until fairly recently was much higher in my rankings, 
but there is another game that beat it and pushed it down. But it doesn't hurt my love for Descent 2nd Edition. It's a dice-rolling, character-building, fun, one-versus-everyone-else dungeon crawl game. And it's fun and silly. Everyone takes a character. You try to fight monsters. The dungeon master overlord person tries to kill everyone. And you go through an entire campaign, which is always a bonus. I love campaign games. I will say, though, at points throughout this game, it feels so unfair that the overlord gets to do so many overpowered things. But then on the other side, all of us players also get to do overpowered things in many of the other turns. And so it just feels unbalanced and greatly unfair at many points. Yeah, that's the problem with it. It has this massive snowball effect, whereas you win scenarios in the campaign, you get more powers, which help you win more scenarios. And inevitably, maybe not inevitably, but at some point, one side is just going to be beating down on the other side. I think specifically. But I won like eight of ten <laughs> scenarios, and then you guys one shot the final boss, and I didn't even get to take an action with him. I, I think that's a, a big problem in this game. There were a couple instances, uh, one one game I'm in particular that I'm thinking of, where we, I, I think our, our goal was to rescue a prisoner who was being held behind these doors that it would take us two or three turns to unlock, and Orion, who was playing the evil overlord, killed our prisoner in, in the second turn. You mean the righteous leader of this land? <laughs> Yeah, it's just so imbalanced. Like, you have to treat it as a silly dice-rolling thing, and it's fun that way. Yeah, I think my take on this, and I think I'm more down on Descent than most of us, is that the game is really fun in spite of itself. And I think the game would be better as an RPG. Because the story's hilarious, you get attached to your characters, but the game, the mechanics are trying to make it feel like a more of a, a strategy it, it's kind a, of move it's a your tactical, units around. It's a tactical minis game cased yeah. in this RPG backdrop. Yeah, so I, I think Matt puts it correctly. It's a really fun game in spite of itself. All right, moving on to number 46, one of the best introductory board games of all time to people who haven't played modern board games before, Ticket to Ride Europe. Ah, oh, that's such a great game. It's. So you think it should be higher? I mean, I I I have a, a great love for this game. It's it's probably one of the first games that I that I played a lot. As this is your list, I won't hold it against you. Yeah, I mean that's basically the reason why it's lower is because I don't play it as much anymore because I'm into more heavy games. But as a light game and as an introductory game, it's so good. It's, Everyone loves it. Everybody. Yeah, everybody loves this game. It's very simple. You, It's kind of a set collection thing. You draw cards from a pile or from a display, and you match colors and then build trains routes of that color. And you're trying to complete big, long routes across the continent or across the country and score points. There's like three rules to it. It's a classic. Like It's a classic for a reason. And the only reason it's not higher on my list, again, is just because it's a bit light for me now. I don't I don't want to play it as much anymore, but I, I completely respect how elegantly designed and how good of a gateway game this is. I will say Ticket to Ride Europe is significantly better than Ticket to Ride, the original game. 
yeah, Ticket to Ride Europe has adds an additional mechanism to the game that you know adds another rule, but it also makes the game less mean. The original Ticket to Ride could be very mean, where you could be completely blocked out. And Europe provides not only has a cooler map, I think, than the U.S. map, but it provides a way for you to escape being completely blocked out of a region. All right, moving on to number forty-five a game that we need to get back into and finish up, even though we're mostly done with it, and that is Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. It's a very unique game. It was originally created in the 70s, I believe, and it's a it, it's not really a board game, I guess. It doesn't have a board. What you get is 10 different cases, which are in little booklets. You get newspapers, fictional newspapers, from the time period of Sherlock Holmes, and you get a directory of London and a map of London that shows a few hundred places you could go to on your case. And you open up one of the cases, you read the description, Sherlock Holmes says something cryptic and passive-aggressive and annoying, and then you have to just pick a spot in London and go to it. And if it's relevant at all, you'll get some kind of text in your booklet that may provide you a clue, maybe a dead end, but you just keep going until you think you've solved the case and then you flip to the back of the book and discover that you are completely wrong about everything. We've and done surprisingly well. We've done well. We've done pretty well. Sherlock will solve the case in three locations and we'll take 20. One thing super frustrating about this game, though, is the book that you read through. There are so many errors, and for that reason, I just I can't get into this game. Yeah, you got to go in just knowing that it's going to be it an adventure. It has so much potential, but <laughs> the very, very first scenario that Mark and I played through... We lost, or we we had significantly lower scores, just because when we measured on the map, the measurements were so imprecise as to not even be useful. Again, a great concept in poor execution, or not poor, not great execution. In that scenario, one of the things they give you, which I think is cool, is a guide to see how long it takes to walk from one section of London to another. And I think that's great. You you have to go find a ruler. You got to pull it out, measure it, and figure out if someone could reasonably, on their alibi or whatever, get from one place to another. We did that, and it gave us a completely wrong conclusion. And there's, I know there's a RADA you have to download for certain scenarios where you they actually change some of the text. It's just they didn't do well in the translation from French and it hurts the game. One thing I'm excited about is that this game has finally caught on and, and publishers are printing. They printed an expansion to this that provides 10 more cases. There's a Lovecraftian one that just came out and there's a couple other games that kind of riff on the same theme. So it's becoming a trend now and I'm curious to see if they improve on it a lot because the execution here. And not even the mistakes. The font choice they use for this book is infuriating. It's horrible. It's on this brownish tinted paper. And it's this really light, squirrely font that you can't read well. Like, and and the there's font. so many typos and mistakes in the words and everything else. And despite that, you get a group of people together. You sit and relax in the living room. And you have a great time trying to complete ciphers we had in the last one yeah, and, it, and it, solve it, the case. It's such a good concept. And you feel just kind of, yeah, you feel like a team. There are different things to do. Different people have different trains of thoughts at times. And then you come back 
when you're ready to go to another location and then you pay attention to the location. Yeah, it's a great party game mixed for a lovely Sunday afternoon sitting around solving a case with Sherlock Holmes. You can play it with people without telling them that it's a board game too. Yeah, it's just Sherlock you're you're Sherlock Holmes. We're gonna we're gonna meet up and we're gonna solve a case like Sherlock Holmes. It's the it's the best pitch in. Board it is gaming. improved by playing with whiskey and a pipe, and a funny hat. Yes. All right, moving on to number forty-four, a game we just played a couple weeks ago and reminded me how much I enjoy this game because we had a fantastic time, and that is Tzolkin. That was my first time playing this game, and I had a wonderful time. Yeah, it's a worker placement game, but very unique. In that Could this win the running of coolest game or coolest board? Definitely. This has the Most. best board of any board game because it has moving gears on it. How it works is that, like I said, it's a worker placement game, but there are four or five different places you can place. And instead of just going putting a worker there and getting the item, you put it there. And then after each round, this main gear in the middle moves and progresses time. And it turns all the other gears that you've placed workers on. And as your workers move around these gears, you get access to different and better actions. So the longer you wait after placing a worker to pick it up and retrieve it and get the action, the better it's going to be. But you have to really time things well because on your turn, you have to place a number of workers or you have to remove a number of workers. You can't do nothing. You can't sit and wait. So it creates this really fascinating puzzle of how to time everything and you know accomplish things you actually want to accomplish but working it out in terms of multiple actions you have to take i I think this is a game that benefits greatly from replay my first game i had played with orion and mark who had both played at least a few times before and my first time through a lot of the game was spent figuring out like just how things worked and realizing oh you really do have to plan ahead in this game it's really a fantastic game, and I think the more you play it, the, the more fun you'll have and the, the better it will be. Yeah, the, the downsides I have for this game is that it's so complex in terms of the decisions you have to make and how far ahead you have to think and the ways in which you have to think that I'm not always in the mood for it. I'll be in the mood for a lot of different heavier games before this one. Like This one really hits my brain in an impactful way in that it it really gives me brain burn a lot, maybe more than any other game we play. It it definitely ends up being a lot heavier than it looks from the outset. But it's still easy enough to where beginner or intermediate players can can at least have fun playing it. It's a mid-weight Euro in, in how easy it is to learn, but to be good at it, you have to really make some clever, interesting decisions throughout. That was my take. I thought it was really fun on the first couple plays. It's really cool to see your workers go around those big gears. And the visual of sort of time progressing is really cool. But to get really good at it would be a, a whole other thing that I, that I wasn't even close to. Yeah, and I, and I tried to play it online. And I saw some people who were you know the best at this game. And they were tripling, quadrupling my score. It's very skill-based. And some of the stuff they were pulling off, I have, even reading through the logs of what they did, it was hard to comprehend how they managed to do everything so perfectly. It's a really crunchy game in that regard. The reason it's so far down, this far down on my list, 
is that, again, I'm not often in the mood for it because of how much it hurts my brain. And I feel like for how tight it is and having to like feed your workers and manage everything so precisely, it has a bit too much of a point salad feel to it where there are a bunch of different ways to get points and you have to manage a little bit of everything. There's another worker placement game. Well, there are worker placement games higher on the list that go one way or the other where this one kind of straddles that line. I don't know. It's a minor criticism. It just doesn't seem quite as focused as those games. Okay, moving on to number 43. And then here we have a variation on a game. I'm sorry for spoiling so much, but you guys knew this here. The people at home don't know this. So close your ear, mute this for like five seconds if you don't want to be spoiled. It's a variation on a game that appears much higher on this list. The game at number 43 is Secret Hitler. Ooh, mm. so good. It's a social deduction game created by the people who created Cards Against Humanity, which, spoiler alert, is not on this list at all. Apples to Apples is actually his third top game. <laughs> Apples to Apples is also not on this list. I think there's only one pure party game on the list. Anyway, it's a social deduction game that takes the resistance and adds a few tweaks to it, basically. It makes it a bit more complicated, a few more additional rules. They're interesting, and they really change up the game, and they provide... The main thing they do is provide more information to the players, which I think makes this problem maybe a bit more accessible, even though there's more rules to it. It makes it a bit more accessible for people going into this genre. And I have a lot of fun with it, but ultimately I think the it, it's lower on this list just because I think the elegance of the resistance is just a better game. Yeah, I'm not ready to make a judgment on this, this one because I haven't played it enough. I experienced a lot of the same really cool moments playing secret hitler at at pax east this year that that i that i experienced when i played the resistance you know that that moment of figuring something out and then no one believes you and then you're right oh yeah it creates a lot of the same moments it just adds more more in more known information to the players which i don't necessarily think is a good thing but it's it's not it's different information it's not necessarily more information i i'm not it's less subtle information i'm not ready to say that you know it's a game that your group would just have figured out after 15 plays or something like that i i think there's potential but like i say i i'm not ready to judge that so i don't have a problem with you putting it on your list here but I think with more plays, there's a chance it could go up with the resistance. It's fun to call people fascists around the board game table. Yeah, it's, it's fun. I don't know. It, it gilds the lily a bit for me, but it's still a really fun game. Yeah. Number 42 we have on the completely other side of the spectrum from Secret Hitler, which is a small party game. We have Eclipse, which is as Ooh. intense as, it, as the name sounds and the box looks. It's a really great kind of economic 4X game set in space where you're controlling a civilization, you're building up ships and trying to explore and take over planets and systems. One of the coolest parts of the game is that you can customize your spaceships and give them new technologies and and better guns and better engines, which is probably the most fun part of the game. I wish more games would do things like that. I really like this game a lot. We should play it more often, actually. <laughs> it's reminiscent of 
another game which I'm sure is somewhere on your list. I won't spoil the name. <laughs> but the thing about Eclipse that I enjoy is that for the type of game it is, it's surprisingly short. A six-hour game doesn't sound like it's a short game, but Eclipse feels a lot shorter just because I feel like there's, it's it's more more combat-focused and less diplomacy-focused than a certain other game that we will not mention. That's why I think I struggled with this game, though, is contrasting the two. It's Twilight Imperium. We're talking about Twilight (laughs) Imperium, guys. (laughs) That's the other game that may or may not be higher on my list. But the battle system in Eclipse, to me, is just so unintuitive, and that's the major part of the game. And so I've always struggled with Eclipse so much. I want to like it. I do like it. But after playing Twilight Imperium, Eclipse will just never ever be a preference over twilight imperium well twilight imperium is your favorite game even even besides that though um the battle mechanisms (coughs) in eclipse seem so clunky and unintuitive and um i i struggle with this game i my opinion of this game has been pretty volatile and i've come down on i i had to get over my initial expectations of this game before I could really enjoy it. Because when you see a big space game, it is a 4X game. It it looks sweet. You feel like you're playing a really cool space exploration, um, extermination, etc. game. But when it comes down to it, it's, the gameplay is more Euro-y. And, oh, yeah. And for sure. It's way more of an optimization and the ship mechanics like mark said are awesome but you don't fight a whole lot and yeah so... it's one of those games where everyone's kind of building up for a final confrontation and this i think is a is a plus and a minus for eclipse the euro nature of it makes for a fantastic resource engine or resource management game and this is aided by the great player boards where you're you're controlling three different types of resources and you have different incomes and you really have to manage those resources very well and that part of the game is great the downside to it is that the last turn of the game ends up being just counting like you're just counting numbers to try to get the most victory right. points there's a few hidden victory points that'll shake things up but you're just optimizing who you want to attack and what system you want to take over if you're still in it. And it makes the game a bit anticlimactic, even though the the meat of the game is just tremendously fun. But you want to fight, and the fight just doesn't deliver. <laughs> yeah, you want, you have all these cool you ships and you want to of, fight more, but it's... You kind of have to separate, and this is what I had to do. I had to separate my expectations of an awesome 4X from the actual gameplay, which is an awesome, more Euro-y game. And and I I'd probably put this around here on my list, maybe a little higher, but yeah, it, it's it's a good game. It just isn't what I thought it was going to be. One of my, the problems I have with this game is that it's so luck determined. And if you have bad dice rolls, you just can do nothing in the game, and you will get blown out and destroyed and set so far behind that you may as well not have played. Not even the luck with the dice rolls, the luck with drawing new tiles when you explore it. That too. The difference, like, when you explore, you're, you're, you're actually adding new hexagons to the play area. Which is really cool. Which is, again, great concept, but you could draw something that you literally gives you nothing. Well, or you, you something could, that gives you can draw you... a tile that has two alien neutrals that you can't deal with until halfway through the game. 
Or you could draw a tile that gives you three resources. Which is massive. Which in is this huge. Game. And those those are in the same pool. And so the, the RNG of finding the right tile at the right time can make or break your entire your game. And we're probably overhyping that a bit because I think with some skilled play, you can mitigate that. But especially for the first few times playing it, the RNG is so hard to deal with. Yeah, and that's that's one of the main reasons it's it's not as high on my list. All right, finally, the last one on this 10, number 41. Da, 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 da. <laughs> another space game. I'll say this, another space game. Can anyone guess what it is? Da, 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 you saw da, it. Da, da. You, you looked at the list. Rebellion? Yes, number 41 is Star Wars Rebellion. This should be way higher. This is a ridiculous rating, and you should be ashamed of yourself. I knew you guys would hate this, but until I'm proven otherwise, the Rebels seem to have such an advantage here. Yeah, but that it's we really know, we know that the Imperials are going to get better as they learn the deck better. I have other reasons why it's this far down on my list. It's a two-player asymmetric Star Wars game where one side plays the Imperials, who or the Empire, who are trying to find the hidden rebel base and stamp out the rebels. The other side plays the rebels. They're trying to accomplish various objectives they pull from a deck and not be destroyed. And it has so many cool mechanisms in it. I think the best thing is the the timer, the time track. So as you go through the game after each round, you progress the timer. But as the rebels complete objectives it moves the end point of that timer down. So the game starts with like 14 or 16 turns being the number of rounds in the game. But by the time it's over, it could be like seven or eight based on how well the rebels have done objectives. So I think that that mechanism's awesome. The way they use leaders and there's a little bit of a bluffing in how you select your actions and how you use your leaders is really cool. It looks amazing. It's got these awesome miniatures. It's got Death Star miniatures. I mean, what more could you want there? But the Rebels keep winning for us, and I think it's going to be very hard for... I think it's at a past introductory period phase before you get really good at the game. I don't see how the Rebels aren't favored tremendously. And there's a lot of high variance to it. So the Rebels start off by selecting a hidden location for their base. And based on how quickly that's discovered, that can change the game a lot. Based on which objectives they draw, that can change the game a lot. Even the systems you start out with, which are slightly randomized, can change the game a lot. There's there's just so much randomness to it that seems impactful that you can do generally successful strategies, but it seems like there's so much high variance there. I think the, the thing that you're discounting is that the last couple times we've played... Had the Imperial player chosen to go to one planet versus another, and they were adjacent to both, the Rebels would have instantly lost. Yeah, that's high variance, right? That's a flip of a coin thing. Yeah. I. That's but a the, negative the, to me. But the Rebels are winning on this specific variance that the Imperial player maybe hasn't figured out yet. Well, it's that the Rebels can... The Rebels have a much more consistent means of achieving their victory, the, while the, the Imperials Re- do not. The Rebel game plan is more about distracting the Imperials and not losing for long enough. And the Imperial player really has the onus on them of figuring out a strategy to find the rebel base so, or, or getting lucky. Right. But, but even if they do like you've done really good kind of web strategies to expand and explore out and hit all the planets and find the rebel base. And 
because you had a 50-50 shot and picked the wrong one, you definitely lost instead of maybe winning. The high variance on the Imperial side. to within a round. Like, if the Imperials had one more round, I would have won at least two of those games. I I don't see it. Like, I'm not seeing it as you do. I think because one side has a very consistent strategy to get their points, basically, and the other side has a very luck-based high variance method of getting their points, it... That's what a downside you, to me. I love the, the rebellion's game. strategy. That's consistent. They just have to not be found, and then yeah, but that's exactly as random as the Imperials. Right, but if they are found, they just move their base early in the game. Like the only time moving your yeah, base is bad ex- is that's late expensive. game. I think the biggest thing you discount is that this game captures a theme brilliantly, and I, I wouldn't th- say brilliant. I think it I captures think that, the Star Wars theme very well. When I played as the Rebellion, I felt like, you know, Mon Mothma trying to keep my base hidden while sending my agents that are very limited to, to slow down the Empire and stuff like that. And you look at the Empire's units and it looks like what you would expect in Star Wars. There's yeah, and it does all and... that. It does all that really well. And you I feel trapped as the Rebellion. You feel... Well, you feel, feel powerful, but you feel so slow as the as the Empire. Yeah. And that takes kind of the power away because the entire point of the Empire is to quickly find the rebel base. So it just it doesn't give me the feelings of being in the Star Wars world as much as I had hoped. Just a hair. And I think the balance issues uh, are really frustrating me, or the, the the perceived balance issues I have. I fully I like, accept. I, I thought that the theme was I, better. I, the theme was much better than I expected. I'm, maybe that's maybe it's just a matter of our expectations going in. Uh, but it, it's it's also a very unique game. I don't think I've played a, another game that's quite the same. It is asymmetrical, as you mentioned. And there are at least three more asymmetrical two-player games higher on my list. <laughs> Uh, no, that's not what makes it unique. Um, it's also a lot lighter than many of the big asymmetrical games that are great. I think it captures the theme great. I Well, we'll talk more about this later. This is actually going to be a discussion on next week's podcast. We're going to talk about this game and a different game. And so we'll get into this more later. Let me just close with this, that I fully am hoping and willing to accept that when I redo this list, say in a year or so, that I'll be proven entirely wrong on my balance concerns about this game, and it'll if I'm am proven wrong there, it'll be significantly higher on my list. My new goal in life is to crush Mark in this game repeatedly as the Imperials. We'll see. I, I I'm pretty confident as the Rebels here, but anyway, there's the first ten, number fifty through forty-one of my top fifty games of all time. Despite our our little heated moments here, I do love all these games. I think they're excellent games. Even though I'm talking about downsides to them, that shouldn't necessarily sway you from them. They're all worth purchasing, playing, trying out, at the very least, if they interest you. Would you guys all agree with that? Yes. Yeah, I don't think there are any games that you mentioned that I don't really enjoy playing. No duds on there? No duds. All right, good. Well, maybe there'll be duds farther up. But for now, there's my 50 to 41 tune in in two weeks for another episode where i talk about numbers 40 through 31 we get higher on my list better games better experiences even though these people may disagree if you enjoyed this podcast please check out 
our normal podcast, which occurs bi-weekly. We're running this on off weeks in between it, where we talk about a variety of different board game topics. Also, check out the website at thethoughtfulgamer.com, which is where most of the content I'm producing is going. I'm doing mostly written reviews, written analysis. I think if you enjoyed this podcast, definitely check out the website. And also, please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. I don't know what all these places are. I just know iTunes and Podbean, which is what I'm hosting on. But please rate. It helps me get more... Uh, listeners. Listeners. Listeners, yeah. That's... I almost said viewers. Anyway, thanks for listening. Please rate the podcast. Check me out at Twitter, on Facebook. Just look up The Thoughtful Gamer. Go to the website. All the information is there. Rate and review this. And we'll continue this again in two weeks. May the force be with you all. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next time. Goodbye.